Let's go to the Lord together again in prayer. Oh, Jesus, you are the sovereign Lord of all creation. Your word is truth and is powerful. And we are a proud and boastful people who make great claims and great boasts which are founded upon nothing. And it may be enough to soothe our consciences or to impress our fellow men, but it's not impressive to you. So we pray that you would cease our empty words and that you would teach us now from your word what it means to call you Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please join me in Luke chapter 6. Tonight's verse is going to be at the 46th verse there. We heard earlier today in Malachi that a father is not without honor from his son nor a master from his servants. There's a very simple reasoning behind these statements and that those qualities are definitional to those relationships. A son is to honor his father, says the fifth commandment. A servant is to fear his master who has the power of life and death over him. God asked of Israel, if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? These relationships are defined in no small part by those qualities and God wants to know where they are. They are missing, which must needs be because Israel was a wicked child and a negligent servant, and not because of any failings in God's part. When we see at the end of Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus takes up this rhetorical method and asks in verse 46 the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? Jesus intends us to understand that someone you call Lord is due your obedience and your submission under their authority. That's how he understands it. No matter how you would like to understand it, an employee obeys his employer, a soldier obeys his commanding officers, a slave obeys his Lord. The one whom you present yourself to be obedient to that one, you are enslaved, either to life or death, sin or righteousness. The simple reasoning of the question is to expose the fact that if you do not obey Jesus' commands, no matter what else you say or do, he is not, in fact, your Lord, even if you call him Lord, Lord, even if you call him Savior or Redeemer or the Christ, the Son of the living God, even if you affirm this confession of faith or that historic creed. This might be scandalous and Shocking to some. We're good evangelical Christians after all. Uh, we uh, uh, fight in defense of salvation through grace alone, by faith alone. 
Well, just in case we're starting to feel a little uncomfortable, I want to find some way to dodge what Jesus is saying. Let's hear his own clarification on what he means. He picks up in verse 47 with an analogy. It says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built, it had been well built. The one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus says, imagine a guy builds a house. Maybe it's a perfectly fine-looking house. Maybe it's the most luxurious mansion you've ever seen. Maybe this is uh, the Taj Mahal or the Graceland of Israel. (laughs) It's got pretty much everything a house could need, but hold on. Something is missing. I'm not talking about a Wi-Fi connection. Jesus says it has no foundation. The guy just builds it right on the sand. Now, the whole idea of a house is to protect you from the elements. That's the primary joy I get from our house anyway. And this house is missing the single most critical thing that's going to help it take the beatings of the weather. No doubt, Mr. So-and-so was laid up in his house imagining that he did good for himself right up until the moment the house came crashing down. And crash it did. Jesus says that the stream broke against it and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. One of the first lessons you learn growing up in a, a dry climate, most of you know I grew up in, in Arizona, was um, when the rainy seasons come, don't be in the wash or the arroyo or whatever you call a dry riverbed there when it starts raining. You just don't do it. It's about as basic to living in the desert as laying a good, sturdy foundation is to home building. It should be obvious. There's another fellow in the analogy, and we'll get to him shortly, but what Jesus is saying is that in the same way that a man who builds his house with no foundation has no reason to expect his house to stand when the rains come, so too does the person who calls him Lord, Lord, yet doesn't obey his words, have any reason to expect him to recognize them. Any sense of protection or benefit that the person might feel in either case is just a vain delusion. Jesus puts the idea of a Lord who isn't obeyed in the category of non-existent and illogical by definition right there next to a four-sided triangle or a married bachelor. There just is no such thing. Jesus doesn't want to hear you simply confessing what is true. He wants to see you live like you believe it. Then and only then does he acknowledge those who call out to him, Lord, That's what the guy who dug down deep and set his foundation upon the rock is like. When the rains came and the floods rose, his house stood firm. It wasn't just a convincing and impressive-looking facade that was missing the necessary component to make it stand. 
Jesus says this is what the one whom hears his word and obeys it is like. They say, Lord, Lord, and it doesn't ring hollow to his ears. It's not missing the vital ingredient which links the lordship of Jesus Christ to his people, which is a, a faith which is greatly concerned with applying the passively received grace towards actively obeying the commandments of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation Jesus instructs you to build upon, which is the doctrine of the apostles, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. I've taken up about half of my time so far, so I'm going to spend the rest of the time making some applications and observations to what exactly is the kind of obedience in sight here. Uh, what does the Lord Jesus command of his people? What does this foundation consist of? Number one, Jesus commands hatred of sin. Jesus commands his people to hate sin as much as he does, especially their own sin, which has required his blood to atone for. He expects them to call it what it is, and to define it with God's law as the standard and not their own preferences. He commands us to fight daily against our sin and to give no opportunity to our flesh and to submit ourselves daily to him that we may serve him and not our sin sinful passions. The Apostle Paul picked up on this thread and instructed young Pastor Timothy that God's firm foundation stands, there's that word again, Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Number two, Jesus commands a love of righteousness. Jesus commands his people to have a true and sincere love of righteousness within them, to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before their God. For the young men to serve the Lord with their strength, the older men to love and guard their wives and teach their children and cultivate a love for Jesus in them. And likewise, for women to look to the well-being of their household, to instruct the younger women in loving their husbands and their children. Jesus expects us to strive daily for the holiness without which no one will see God. And for those who call on the Lord from a pure heart to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Number three, Jesus commands seeking the things which are above and not below. Jesus commands his people not to set their hearts and longings and affections on the vain, temporary, and brutish pleasures of this world, but to set everything upon the world to come. Jesus commands us to endure any hardship and suffer any loss that we might that we must, that we might enter his Father's kingdom. He tells you ahead of time, agonize to enter through the gate, for straight is the way and narrow is the gate, and few there be that enter therein. The life of a living faith is not passive, but is active and is filled with the cutting off of hands and the gouging out of eyes and the crucifying of the flesh all day long, for sin is long in dying. Jesus tells you to count the cost if you intend to set out after him. That the kingdom suffers only the violent to enter into it and they enter it forcefully. It is better to end your life as Jacob did broken and limping after wrestling long 
and worshiping God whilst leaning over his staff. Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ commands you, whatever else you do, set your heart and mind upon the things which are above and not the things below, which only stir your flesh and cause it to work against you in your sojourning. The time for doing what the Gentiles lost after is over. The end of all things is at hand. Be bold, therefore, and count yourself as crucified with Christ to this world and it to you. Number four, Jesus commands fruitful cultivation. Jesus gives each of his servants a good deposit of grace and faith, and he expects to have a good return on his investment from them. Or, to use another analogy, he's a husbandman who expects to find much fruit on the vine. What faith Jesus has planted by grace, we are entrusted to steward and to guard well, not only that it remains as one who barely endures, but that it increases and grows. Jesus commended the servant who invested the talents and grew the wealth of his master while he was away, and he uh, condemned the servant who buried the single talent that was entrusted to him. Jesus expects his servants to make every effort to supplement their faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, Self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. The one who cultivates these qualities shows that he makes no empty profession but has in fact been washed clean of his sin by the Lord Jesus Christ and may be assured that he will be richly welcomed into Jesus' kingdom Number five, Jesus commands his servants to look to him for everything. Up until now, I'm sure there is at least someone out there who's worried that I'm skirting the boundaries of salvation by works. Uh, No, again, to be clear, what we're talking about is what true saving faith looks like, what a genuine profession of faith looks like. And we say, looks like and not sound like because the whole premise of Jesus' question is that talk is cheap. Anybody can say anything, but the proof, Jesus says, is in the obedience. And his atonement provides richly for those who seek it. The blood of Christ does indeed wash us clean and makes atonement for our sin by faith. It also breaks the power of sin over us. Peter says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You were ransomed from those futile ways by the blood of Christ. Your sinful ways are not your master anymore. Jesus is, and he empowers you to live for him. Paul likewise reminds Titus that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Besides which, he makes the Holy Spirit to take up his residence in us, to aid us in the killing of the flesh. For the one who destroys the temple of God is himself, uh, by defiling it with sin is himself destroyed. If we are hindered in our spiritual duties, we are commanded to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. By his death, Jesus has made provision for every strength and every comfort, every grace and every joy. 
He has given the enemy of sin into our hands to kill it as he formerly delivered the Canaanites into the hands of Joshua and his armies. In closing, if you call Jesus Lord, Lord, and do not the things which he says, be warned now that his response will be, I don't know you. You are not my servant. Your sinful passions were your master. You lived for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Your stomach was your God. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. But if you call Jesus Lord, Lord, and obey these things, he says, not perfectly, but faithfully, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness and weep over sin, if you fight to crucify the flesh and its lusts and long to see the glory of the Lord, then you may expect to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Lay down your sword and shield and enter into the joy of your master's rest. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often are boastful and make empty claims and throw around words and lose sight of the meaning and the weight of them. We pray that you would make us to be more guarded in our speech, that our profession matches our actions more closely, that by our words and our actions, Uh, the world would know that we are your disciples by the love that we have for one another and the compassion that we have for dying sinners and the love that we have for you and your word. We pray that you would do all this for Jesus' sake. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.